Tim James has been the pastor of Sequoia Baptist Church in Cherokee, North Carolina since 1978, right? I remember what month you went there. May of 1978. And uh, he's been a good friend to our congregation. And we're thankful for you. You come preach the gospel to us, Tim. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to hear this message I just heard. Anchored once again in the blood of Jesus Christ, you can't find any place better to be. You folks are dear to me. Your pastor and his wife are dear to me. This man who just preached is... I like him a little bit, too. (laughs) Turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5. I want to read two verses of Scripture, verses 39 and 40. Our Lord is speaking to some folks who are out to put Him out of business. He says to them, Search the Scriptures, or actually you do search the Scriptures, For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Our Lord said in answer to unbelief, men write books about how to deal with people who don't believe and soul-winning books and things like that. How to talk to this type of person and how to talk to that type of person. Our Lord talked to a lot of religious people. We just heard our brother talk about one time he talked to unbelievers. He didn't beg and cajole and wring his hands and wonder why they didn't believe. He said, you know, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. In another place, he said to a group of people, John chapter 6, I know you don't believe, but all the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. you read the Gospels over and over again, you'll find people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. They come to Him. And they come to Him because they have great need. Now, many followed Him for the miracles that He did, and some stayed with Him a while, and when He spoke the truth, like in John chapter 6, they went away and followed Him no more. But those with great needs seem to find their way to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were thirsty, and He gave them water. They were hungry, and He gave them food. 
Now, we can stand up here all day and beat our gums, and we can't make you thirsty, and we can't make you hungry. You might be goofy and stupid and try to make yourself thirsty and hungry, but only goofy and people, stupid people do that. But you know if you're thirsty, and you know if you're hungry. God used those terms, that kind of language, so we'd understand what he was talking about. When you find people seeking out the Lord for help, you find another thing. You find the Lord always helping them. Always helping them. Sometimes you find people who have great needs who could not seek the Lord. Their malady was such, their sickness was such, they were unable to seek the Lord. And in those cases, you find Christ seeking them out and finding them. John chapter 5 is a picture of that, is a story of that. One thing you find that these accounts of God healing sick folks, our Lord laying His hands on people and, or speaking to them, and making them better are pictures of salvation. They are not salvation. They are temporary fixes to temporary maladies. But they picture salvation. And one of the beautiful things about it is that as they picture salvation, it pictures also how God, in His grace, views his elect sinful rebels as sick. Isn't that sweet? When you see somebody sick, you don't want to whack them upside the head. You don't want to beat them up. You don't want to put them in hell, do you? You want to have pity on them. As a father pitieth his children, so God pitieth them that fear them. And that's, that's how he views our sin. For us, we know it's rebellion. We know it's anger. We know it's hatred. We know it's vileness. God looks and says, oh, he's sick. My child is sick. And that's why these are pictured this way. You'll find that after Christ came to these folks, that they in response came to, came to him and followed him. Now, when our Lord healed the unhealable, we'll find over and over again the hackles of religion get raised up. The words he speaks in John chapter 5 and verse 39 and 40 are those, are spoken to those who really want to kill him, to put him out of business, because he healed this man at the pool of Bethesda. That pool was a miraculous pool. I don't know how else to explain it, and I don't see any reason to explain it any other way. But it was a miraculous pool, and it made some people well. It was a merciful place. Bethesda means a house of mercy, but remember, it's temporal mercy because all those healed went on and died anyway. I believe it was a picture of the old covenant, this pool of mercy, because it could only meet the need of those who could get in the pool first. They got into the pool first immediately after the angels, it said, stirred the waters. And this teaches us some profound truths. 
First, it teaches that at Bethesda, to get healed, you had to be less afflicted than the rest of the folk there. You had to be less afflicted. Yet at least slightly afflicted because it was a pool for healing. The shores of that pool were a kind of triage. And it dealt with a religion of potency and self-help. Secondly, it teaches that you had to be aware of the opportunity and expedient in obedience to the requirement which was get yourself in that pool. Thirdly, it teaches that if you were unable to follow these procedures, you could also enlist the assistance of some benevolent folk to carry you to the healing waters. Though considering that it was every man for himself, the truly helpless probably remain in their sad and hopeless estate, watching others go into that pool. That's a plain picture. It paints a picture of the old covenant, the covenant under which all religions except for one operate this very hour. You see, religion has nothing for the truly ruined. Nothing for the truly impotent. Nothing for those who cannot help themselves. Religion works well where the slightly sick, the moderately infirm, can be healed and reformed because such are able to do something for themselves. Such are able to act. Such are able to exercise their will or stir up the seed of divinity in them. They can get to the water by their own power. They can pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They can get right. They can straighten up and fly right. They can, or they might even be hefted on the soldier's shoulders of religion if their future possible contribution seems vital enough to the organization to warrant toting them around for a little bit. But what about the ruined? The utterly helpless. That sad creature who can only look and watch as the partially wounded, the slightly bruised, get help or are able to help themselves while he sits in grave clothes, too far gone to do anything. Religion has given him up as a lost cause. Works religion is a mockery to the truly lost, just as these roiling waters were a mockery to this man's sickness. You see, religion is useless to the impotent. It is for the able-bodied, for the slightly sick, for the soul that needs a little tweaking or a little help. Or a book that teach, can teach them how to self-help. But mercy came to the house that day. To the house of mercy. Not in the bubbling pool, but in the sovereign deluge of the loving kindness of God Almighty in human flesh. 
And while the pool roiled, awaiting the gold medalists of some semi-afflicted foot race, the water of life washed over this fellow. That old ruined wretch who could not move a muscle, who could not twitch a finger, who could not blink an eye, who could not help himself. Christ said to him, Will you be made whole? What a question for a sick guy. Of course I'll be made whole. Why wouldn't I be? Of course, being made whole means some things. You can't get the pity of folk no more. You have to take up your bed and get out of here. You can't lay by the pool anymore. You've got to go out and work and get a job and act like a real human being now. You can't be the sad sack in the church anymore. Will you be made whole? He said, well, there's nobody to take me down to the pool. He said, well, okay, take up your bed and walk. And he did. He got right up, took up his bed and walked. After Christ healed him, he rolled up his bedroll and started walking home. I expect with a little bit of skip in his step, he'd been healed. And now religion shows up. Now it shows up. It catches him and collars him. They say, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? He said, some fella healed me. Told me to take up my bed and walk. He healed me and I'm, at, I'm, I'm obeying him. I'm going home. And what follows is that religion wants to get rid of Christ because later the man told him who had healed him. It's interesting they didn't have anything to do with this fellow until he was whole. That's pretty much what religion will have to you, what you can do for them. I've had people come to my church, tell me, you've got this little church, you, you know, I think I could help you here. And I just tell them, go on home. we got all the help we need. Our help is the Lord. They get mad at Jesus Christ for sealing this fellow on the Sabbath. But they just hate Him generally. Because rules are rules, you see. Because if religion can't help somebody, they ought not to be able to be helped by anybody. If religion can't help them. And if this fellow, Jesus of Nazareth, is able to help this helpless one, then he must be greater than the rules. He must be greater than the religion. And that would be, well, anarchy, wouldn't it? If one walked among us like that, and they simply refused to believe that Christ is who He says He is. Verses 16 and 18, our Lord said this in this chapter, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay Him because He had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered said, My Father worketh hitherto. And I work. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but he said God was his Father, making him equal with God. Christ thought it not robbery to be equal to God, according to Philippians. And now in our text, he's talking to these men. In our text, is an indictment against people, these religious folks, because they hate him and want to kill him. 
But before we specifically get to our text, it's important to note that our Lord had some mighty telling words to say about these religious men, these religious regulators, these men, these good men, these moral icons, these uh, Bible-reading, Scripture-searching men and women, law-abiding, community watchdogs. These men, our Lord had something to say to them. First, He tells them that they not only do not know God, He tells them that they have never heard His voice. And this is no small thing. It is a primary reason they have rejected Him. In verse 37, our Lord says, The Father Himself which has sent Me hath borne witness of Me. Ye have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His shape. You've not heard His voice. Every one of God's elect, every one of God's sheep, every one of God's people hear His voice. He said, and our brother just quoted, My sheep hear My voice. But he said, you haven't heard His voice. What does it mean? They're not sheep. They're not elect. They're religious, Bible-believing, Bible-searching folks who spend the time in Scriptures. But they're not taught of the Father. Because our Lord says, you won't come to me for life. And the Scripture says, all that is heard of the Father and learned of the Father, come to Christ. If God has taught you, you'll come to Christ. You won't come to religion. You'll come to Christ. You won't come to theology. You'll come to Christ. If the Father teaches you. And the Father's not speaking out of both sides of His mouth. He's on the level. He said, my ways are equal. I always do it right. So if the Father's taught you, He's taught you what our brother just preached to you, and what Jim preaches to you every Sunday morning and Wednesday night. He's taught you about who Christ is, why He came, what He did, and where He is now, and of the absolute success of that glorious operation between Him and His Son, wherein He he assured and procured the salvation of all the elect to the glory of the Father. He's going to teach you that. And if you haven't been taught that, it's because He hasn't taught you. Because if He teaches you, that's what He'll teach you. And what the result of that will be is you will, will come to Jesus Christ. If you're out here tonight and you ain't come, I can tell you why. You've not been taught of the Father. Is that any way to talk to unbelievers? That's the way the, the Lord talked to them. Fellow told me one time not long ago, I don't believe in God. I told him, I don't think God's losing any sleep over that. Because he's not. All that he's given to Christ will come. We preach the gospel because we know out there, there's some of God's sheep. We don't know who they are. But we know they're out there. And so we tell them about the Savior that saved them, that redeemed them, that bought their salvation, that wrought their salvation, that finished their salvation. The good news of the gospel. Not some pool that if you can get to it, it'll make you better. Secondly, he tells them that the Word of God has never made it past their eyes. 
the words they read are just a bunch of words to them. If they had learned the words they read, if they, if those words abided in them, had reached their inner man and into their heart, they would have come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 38. Ye have not His word abiding in you, for whom ye, whom He has sent, ye believe not. If His word was abiding in you, you'd believe the one that He sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord said to this same type of people, these same kind of people might have been the same guys. I don't know. But in John chapter 8 and verse 47, He said, He that is of God heareth God's words. And then He looked them in the eye and gave an invitation and sang 21 verses of just as I am. No. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Doesn't sound like that nice little Jesus everybody's talking about, does it? Because it's not. Thirdly, he tells this religion much that they have no, that God's love is not in them or that they do not love God. And again, this is revealed because they obviously do not love Christ. Our Lord said in John 8, 42, If you love God, you'd love me. Because He sent me. He sent me. Fourthly, these fellows do, do what they do to be honored by each other. Their interest is self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, a pat on the back, an honorable mention, something they can relate to in their own life. They care nothing for the honor of God, for the glory of God. And that is the primary, primary reason that they do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 43 and 44. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? How can you? How can you? That's what you're looking for. That's what you'll get. You'll get the honor of men. Fifthly, our Lord tells these fellows that they don't believe what they read and that they don't believe who they say they believe because if they did, they would come to Christ. Verses 45 through 47, Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, whom you trust. Oh, we like Moses. Even Moses, whom you trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my word? In our text, our Lord indicts these men for their unwillingness to come to Him on several levels. The primary thing addressed as to the reason why they reject Christ is that they are unbelievers. They are unbelievers in the face of undeniable evidence. Here in our text, our Lord uses the Scriptures as the fourth witness that these religionists have rejected. First of all, they rejected the testimony of John. Verses 32 and 33. There is another that beareth witness of me, 
And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. He sent, he sent, John, sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. They didn't listen to John. They wouldn't have anything to do with John. They rejected the testimony of Christ's works. Right there before him, he was able to do things that no other man was able to do. He spake like no other man spake, but he actually he could spit in on dirt and make mud and put it on a guy's eyes and say, go wash yourself in the brook and come out and see. He could unstop men's ears. He could say to a man whose hand was withered, straighten that thing out. And there you go. Verse 36, he says, But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which your Father hath given me to finish, the same works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. That proves that the Father has sent me. And they didn't listen to that witness either. They rejected the testimony of the Father. Verse 37, And the Father Himself, which has sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard His voice nor at any time, nor seen His feet. The Father bears witness of me. They rejected the testimony of the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, he said in verse 39. For in them you think you find eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. So they rejected the testimony of Scriptures. And these rejected the testimony of Christ. How do we know? They wouldn't come to Him. They wouldn't come to Him for life. Our Lord also indicts them for the thoughts. There's an old saying that says you can't hang you for your thoughts. God can. Whoever they are might not be able to. But be assured that if your thoughts are wrong about God and how eternal life is obtained, God has a gallows with your name on it. Our Lord in the original says you do search the Scriptures. Because in them you think, you think you have eternal life. Now, the Scriptures do declare eternal life. In the next chapter, our Lord will say, The flesh profits nothing, the Spirit quickeneth the flesh profits nothing. My words, they are spirit, and they are life. Peter knew that. He says, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. These words do speak of life. They declare the promise of life. They possess the power of it. I don't know how this works. Because it's just a bunch of nobody standing up here repeating something that's been repeated for 3,500 years pretty much. How does that work? Like the fellow says, how does electricity work? He said, really well. That's how the gospel works. It works really well. But I don't, try to, don't ask me to explain it. But they declare the power of it. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes it. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. For the just shall live by faith. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. The power and the wisdom of God. These words contain the seed. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, You are not, you're born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. Even by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And it is by the gospel that this word is preached unto you. The seed of life is in these words. Preached. Because the gospel is not really the gospel until it's preached. Do you know that? It's proclaimed, it's published, it's preached. 
It's preached. You say, well, it's right here in this book. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? And that's not exalting this position. You know I'm nothing. Jim and Gary and I aren't going to leave a greasy spot on history. None of us are going to be remembered much longer than after we're gone. You know? But this Word, you're going to hear the Gospel. How beautiful are the mountains at the feet of them that publisheth peace. That publishes salvation. Saying, Thy God reigneth. Saying, It's good news. The Cherokee word is Ashtokanoheda. Good news to tell it. Good news to tell it. The seed. How does that work? Hmm? Just fine. These words are employed in the generation or the regeneration of a person. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. These words proclaim the person of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, you're familiar with the, these words. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is quicker, quickening, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You ever felt like when Jim was preaching that he's read your mail? That's the Word of God. That's the power it has. I know you've experienced this. You've, you've preached and somebody come back and says, you're talking to me today, preacher. I mean, that's, that was right to me. Well, you wasn't talking to them. You're just preaching the gospel to the whole outfit. But the Word found its mark. We shoot the, barrel, we shoot the arrow in the air to venture, but it's a guided missile. <laughs> and it always finds the mark right beneath the breastplate into your heart. But listen to how this is described. A discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. And in verse 13 he says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. There's a book put out by Herbert Lockyer, I think his name was, and he was, I think, with all the prophecies of the Messiah in the Scripture. And one of them was, he sat alongside in two columns, the written word of how it's described in Scripture, and the living word of how it's described in Scripture, get a chance to read it sometime. They're described the same way. <laughs> There's no difference in the description. Is the written word the Word of God? It is the Word of God. Who is Christ? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. Don't ask me to explain that either, because I can't explain that. But when he talks about this word being quickening and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing even to the dividing of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrows and the discern of the thoughts and their intents of his heart, he said, nothing, no creature is not manifest in his sight. His sight. And what, an, what is this indictment then to these men? They believed that the act, the practice of reading the Bible and memorizing it and copying it and endeavoring to live by its law and to know the doctrine meant that they had eternal life. That's what they thought. 
I thought that once. Didn't I, Jim? I thought that once. I knew the doctor. I was a five-point Calvinist. Legalist. Straightening everybody's life out. Except my own. Because I didn't think I needed straighten out. Because you see, I knew these things. I knew them. And I could rehearse them. And I could tell folks about them. And did. Often used them as the proverbial blunt instrument to bludgeon people's heads with. But I didn't know Jesus Christ. I had not come to Him for life. I had come to doctrine. I come to a gospel preaching church. I had fellow friends who believed just like I did. But as they say, I was as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. These men believed that the act, the practice of reading it and memorizing the Bible and copying it and endeavor to live by its law and to know its doctrine meant that they had eternal life. You do search the Scriptures. For in them you think ye have eternal life, but they are they which testify me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. These believed that the Bible was the Bible. They believed it from kiver to kiver. They even believed where it said genuine leather on it, that it was genuine leather. They believed the Bible. They didn't believe the message of the Bible. They didn't know the message of the Bible because they did not seek eternal life at the place where the Bible taught that it was. When the angels came over those shepherds by night and said, Glory to God in the highest. A Savior is born. You'll find Him in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The shepherds didn't go to the temple. They didn't go to the church. They didn't go to the palace. They didn't go to the courtyard. You know where they went? To the manger. Because that's where He was. He's in these words. And they went to these words, but didn't go to Him. Didn't go to Him. The Scriptures testify that Christ is life. And to have eternal life is to come to Him. And part of this indictment is suggested in the words that these would not come to Christ for life. The intimation is, and the fact of their chosen life reveals this. They had come to religion. They had come to church. They had come to hear John. They had come to the law. They had come to the Scriptures, but not to Jesus Christ. There is a suggestion by omission that they might have even come to Christ. They were, after all, in His presence at this time. They came to Christ. Many people came to Him but not for life. But not for life. Many come to Christ for miracles, for healing, for monetary gain, for business networking, for help when they get in trouble, for religious experience. But these things are of no value if Christ is not sought for life. And finally, these words of our Lord are an indictment of the will of these men. You will not come to me that you might have life. They will not come 
And our Lord, when addressing the subject of the will, is not addressing the will as to ability or power to perform. There's only one will in the earth, or in the universe, actually, that has that. God has a will, and, it has, and He has power to perform whatever His will is. But His will's not free. It's subject to Himself. God's not going to act like anything other than God. God's not going to do what He will not do. God's not going to do what He don't want to do. He does what He wants to do, doesn't He? Our God has done what He pleased in heaven and earth and all the deep places and under the sea. That's what our God does. So if He wants to do something, that's what He will do. <laughs> what He wants, He wills. The will comes from the want. So when a person says, I have free will, I do what I want, that automatically disqualifies that free will because they're doing what they want. They're not doing what they don't want. <laughs> to be free is to have no compelling force outside moving against you one way or the other. God's will is not free. It's His will. His mind, His heart, what He desires. That's what He will do. He does His will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what does it? Why does He do His will? Because that's what He wants to do. That's what's in His heart and in His mind. You and I do that too. At least we choose that. I want to do this, and then we'll trip and fall on our face. I want to go a trip, on a trip, but my car's got a flat tire. I want to buy a house, but I ain't got no money. You're willing if you can't perform. God can perform. And does perform His will. But these men will not come to Christ. Why? They won't to. They won't to. It's almost a moot point because such a thing as power or ability to perform when applied to man's will does not exist. It only deals with direction or choice or course, which is merely a revelation or a reflection of nature and mind and heart. The will has no power. It's just a revealer. Two prime examples of that factor, Isaiah 14, when the king of Tyre said, I'm going to mount, I will be like the most high God. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I want to do. I will sit on the throne of heaven. I will do that. I will. That's what I'm wanting. That's what I'm going to do. And God said, no, you're not. I'm going to put you down in hell. Well, I don't want to go to there. Tough. Sound like your will don't have any power. Don't have any power at all. Dead men don't will nothing. And if they could, it wouldn't work. How about live men? How about men who are saints? How about men who have been saved by God's grace? How about men who have been met on the road to Damascus and unhorsed and cast down into dust and made blind and then given sight when the gospel's preached? Of? What about a guy like that? What about a guy who started most of the churches in Asia Minor? What about a Christian like that? Man, that must be a super Christian. Here's his resume. What I would, I do not. And what I would not, that I do. There's a law in me that when I would do good, evil is present with me. You see, the will is there, but the power to what? Perform is not. The power to perform. And yet, everyone who comes to Christ is willing to come. They will come. You just better not get in their way. They're going to come. 
The will is the choice and reveals inclination and reveals affinity and the affections and only that. Only that. The will's ability extends only to that of choice. Only God possesses ability to accomplish it. And what an indictment this is. Religion loves everything about religion. Loves everything about the Bible. Except for what the Bible teaches. With the clear declaration of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. That He is life. Eternal life. Men are not willing to come to Him for it. Why? They don't want to. <laughs> they don't want to. They can't because they're dead. But they don't want to. They don't want to. So if they don't want to, they choose not to. They will not. Nobody will do what they will not do. <laughs> you know, that makes sense. That makes sense. They will choose a thousand ways to die. They'll go to hell from a church pew with a Bible in their hands spouting Scripture verses and singing just as I am. They'll walk across coals. They'll nail themselves to a cross. They'll crawl down an aisle on their belly like a reptile. They'll take Lashes and beat their backs. They'll wear hairy robes and sleep on concrete. They'll suffer for the cause. They'll deny themselves all the things they really want to do. I don't go to movies. Well, you want to go to movies. You ain't denying yourself. You're bragging on yourself. You're bragging on yourself. They have no inclination toward it. No affinity for Him and no affection toward Him. Therefore, they will never choose Him. Thus, their nature and their affection toward Him is revealed. Their heart is revealed. Their nature is religious sin. What the old Puritans called splendida peccata. Shining sin. They love, or their love is for their life. Therefore, they don't need another. Not eternal life. They love themselves and not Christ, so they won't come. You can't gang save them. You can't jerk them out of a pew and drag them down front. You can't make them do anything. The very Son of God, with five strong witnesses, John the Baptist, the works of Christ, the Father, the Scripture, the works that He did, they won't come. But thanks be unto God. All His people shall come. And they shall come because they will come. And they will come because they want to come. And they will choose to come. Because God has given them His Spirit and when He gives them His Spirit by regeneration, gives them faith to believe, suddenly they have an inclination toward Him. 
an affinity toward Him, an affection toward Him. The most natural thing for one who has been blessed this way, the natural outcome of such a thing, is to come to Christ. No pressure. Don't have to get... Don't have to have a soul winning class to get them there. To come. The heart determines what's natural to the man. It determines that. And if your heart has been made anew by Christ, you will come. Our Lord said it. In the face of the same kind of people, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down to heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is my Father's will that all He's given me. I shall lose nothing but raise it up again in the last day. And in that great little private eavesdropping that David did in Psalm 110, he said, The Lord said to my Lord, what did he say? Rule thou in the midst of your enemies and your people will be willing in the day of your power coming to Christ. How do you do that? Right where you are. As Scott said, don't lift a finger, don't blink an eye, don't move a muscle. Trust Him. That's what this book is about. God bless you.